Our text this evening is from John chapter 6, the Gospel of John chapter 6, and our focus is verses 35 through 40. Let me go back to verse 22 and read, uh, starting there to bring in the context. The next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says to them there in verse 35, I am the bread of life. And I ask you this evening, what is life? This is one of those philosophical questions that can be answered only in part by science. Life, if you look at the definition in Webster's Dictionary, is the property or quality that distinguishes living organisms from dead organisms and inanimate matter. I love those kinds of definitions. In other words, life is what you have when you aren't dead. Uh, the definition goes on to tell us how we can recognize an organism that has life. It has a metabolism. It, it grows. It, it reproduces. It responds to stimuli. It adapts to its environment. So basically, life is a mystery, but we can recognize when it is present. In the end, it's hard to describe as to its essence. We might try to explain by saying, well, a living thing has energy or it has power by which it can manipulate itself and its environment. But energy is not the essence of life. The sun has energy, but it's not a living thing. In Genesis chapter 1, we find the word living first applied to the animals, whether 
of the sea or air or land. And what stands out about these animals based on the Hebrew word that is used in connection with them is that living, uh, is that they are living creatures that breathe. We see then that there are degrees of life for lack of a better way of stating it. Um, plants are alive, but not in the same way that animals are. Animals are creatures which live by breathing. And scripture picks up on what experience confirms are the differences between animal life and vegetative life, as well as differences between animal life and human life. The word for creature means a breathing creature and is a word that has come to be associated with animal creatures who are in some ways like humans as they think, as they react to stimuli, as they even have, in some cases, a semblance of emotions, as they interact passionately with their environment, as they flee from danger, as they pursue food out of hunger, even at times some animals vocalizing pain and pleasure and protecting their kind. The similarities explain why this word that is associated with both animals and humans is often translated as soul. At the same time, animals are not to be thought to have a spirit soul like man. A special soul was given to man when God created man in his own image by breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. And it's this human soul that we associate with the highest form of creaturely life. Man and animals, yes, we both breathe air, and yes, we share on uh, uh, on some level with animals, the reality that life is more than just having a pulse and breathing. Life is having a passionate interaction with one's environment. But one's experience of life is, but man's experience of life is far greater than that of an animal. For we were created to be in fellowship with God, and so life has always been more than the animal life of breathing air and interacting with this earth the highest form of life which animals cannot experience, but humans can, is eternal life, which as Jesus defines in John 17, verse 3 in this way, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so life is ultimately knowing God. It's about interacting with God and having a relationship, a fellowship with God that never ends. And what you understand life to be is vitally important for how you will live. The people in Jesus' day, they regarded life as primarily physical. Now, I would venture to guess that in line with their Jewish heritage, many of those who interacted with Jesus, they were religious people, and as such, they had some understanding of the reality of a spiritual realm and, and some kind of an understanding of heaven, life after death. It's reasonable to assume that they, like many worldly people, have given some thought to heaven and to what is necessary to get there when they die. Nevertheless, spiritual things did not have a prominent place in their thinking and lives. This is evident by their focus on earthly bread. Notice that after Jesus' miraculous feeding of 5,000 men plus women and children, they wanted to make Jesus king. And what was their goal well, Jesus exposed their motives. He exposed their worldly view of reality when he told them in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And he admonished them at that point. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. <clears throat> and you can recall they latched onto that word work. 
And uh, they asked them what they must do to be doing the works of God. They didn't understand that salvation is by grace through faith. They were thinking that their good works in this life would earn them life in heaven after they had died. And when Jesus called them to believe in him, they immediately thought of Moses who gave them bread from heaven. They challenged Jesus to perform a sign work that would prove himself greater than Moses. And Jesus challenged their perspective by proclaiming that it was God the Father who gave bread to the Israelites in the wilderness. It was not Moses who gave them bread. And more importantly, Jesus directed them to seek the true bread from heaven. And uh, he was directing them in that to seek him. At the same time, the Greek wording does allow Jesus' audience at that point to think that Jesus is still referring to earthly bread because the bread of God could be understood as that which um, comes down from heaven rather than as he who comes down from heaven. So the question for Jesus' audience at that point is, is this bread an it or is it a he? Jesus is referring to himself, but his audience is still thinking only on the physical level, as is evident by their reply in verse 34. Sir, give us this bread always, whereby always we understand them to be saying, give this bread to us again and again and again, as long as we need it. They're willing to seek the bread that Jesus can give, but in their minds, this is earthly bread that only supports life temporarily until weakness and hunger sets in again. And so they want Jesus to give them this bread in an ongoing way. And so the point is that for Jesus' audience, life is really only about this world. It's only about their physical bodies. As, the, as far as they are concerned, what they need is bread like you get from a bakery, and they're hoping that Jesus will keep giving it. They're grasping neither the nature of this true bread from heaven of which Jesus has spoken over against the manna that Moses gave. They're not understanding as well the significance of a bread that gives life. Certainly physical bread sustains physical life, but physical bread doesn't give life in any sense, physical or spiritual. But as with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, there's a lack of spiritual understanding there thinking only on the mundane level. And uh, in the verses that we're considering this evening, Jesus is explaining in no uncertain terms what kind of bread he's talking about. He's, he's dispensing with his audience's misunderstanding. And since everything in verses 35 through 40 is related to this seeking of this true bread, I've taken that as the theme, seeking the true bread. And under this theme, um, I'll be developing three points. First of all, what? What it is to seek this true bread. Second, the incentives to seek this true bread. And third, the certain result of seeking this true bread. So we begin with what? And in verse 35, Jesus casts aside, as I said, any excuse for confusion, any excuse for misunderstanding about what this true bread is all about. He states the matter straight out. I am the bread of life. Jesus has told them to work for the food that endures uh, to eternal life, but that work is to believe in him. He told them in verse 27, the son of man would give them something. And we wonder, was he saying that he would give them food? Like, would he give them bread? Or was it eternal life? Or are this bread and eternal life connected somehow? Can wheat bread, can barley bread give eternal life? Jesus explained that the Father gives them the true bread from heaven. 
They still think the bread is an it, and they want Jesus to give it to them always, but Jesus leaves no doubt about what he means. He says, I am the bread of life. The bread, now it's clear, the bread is not something that he gives that's outside of himself. The bread is him. By Jesus telling us that he is the bread of life, he is telling us about who it is we are to seek. And I would direct your attention, first of all, to the wording, I am. I am, Jesus says, the bread of life. Jesus will end up making seven such I am statements. In chapter 8, he will say, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. We just heard a sermon about that, uh, was it last week? And in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. Any in Jesus' audience that were at all familiar with the Old Testament scriptures would have immediately recognized that Jesus here is making a very profound statement with great theological significance. When he is saying, I am the bread of life, Jesus is here claiming to be Jehovah God. The connection between the words I am and Jehovah are made by God himself back in Exodus chapter 3. That's the passage where God is communicating with Moses at the burning bush. God was already known as Yahweh or Jehovah. There's differences of opinion exactly how the Hebrew name would have been pronounced, probably closer to Yahweh, actually. But perhaps that name had been forgotten by the people of God, and they they knew him only as Elohim, or the basic name for God over against the other so-called gods of Egypt. So along these lines, Moses wants to know what is unique about God so that he can then communicate to the Hebrews who the true God is. His hope is that he can tell them something about the true God that will inspire trust in him. And he anticipates them asking, what is his name? In other words, who is he? What is he like? And God answers by connecting the name Yahweh with the verb to be. God first says of himself, I am who I am, and then adds, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And furthermore, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh has sent me to you. So Moses is told to say both, I am has sent me and Yahweh has sent me. I am, you see, is Yahweh. The connection between I am and Yahweh was a rather natural and easy one to recognize as the words in the Hebrew look nearly identical. They share the same four root consonants. The the consonants um, are basically the same. And uh, the relevance to our text this evening is that by Jesus saying, I am, he's claiming to be the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who delivered his covenant people from Egypt, the God who gave them manna in the wilderness. As for Yahweh, Jesus, the word, the Son of God, is of the very same essence as God the Father. And this name, I am, informs us about the nature of God and ultimately then about the nature of Jesus, who he is and what he is like. And the name, I am, is a revelation of what we call God's aseity. This is a theological term for what we might summarize as God's self-sufficiency. 
The word aseity literally means of oneself, and in relation to God, it means that God exists of himself. The idea is that God is uncreated. Bavink, a well-known Reformed theologian, defined aseity as God, quote, uh, God is whatever he is by his own self or of his own self, end quote. He is whatever he is by his own self. John 5, verse 26 puts the matter this way, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. For us in this creation, any life is derived from God. We are dependent upon God to give life, to sustain life. He is the one in whom all other things outside of himself find their source, existence, and continuance. Acts 17.25 says of God, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. But as for God, he has life in himself. That's his aseity. He simply is. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament dating way back, um, that the Septuagint translates God's statement in Exodus 3 about himself as, I am the one who is. God is the existing one. He is self-originating. And in his own triune life is not dependent upon anything in his creation. He doesn't depend upon anything. He doesn't depend upon anyone to be, to exist. He is. In addition, he doesn't depend upon anyone or anything he has created to perfect him or to add anything to him. He doesn't need us or anything of this universe to, to fulfill him, uh, to fulfill, to accomplish his purposes, as though before creation God somehow wasn't complete. Now, his purposes, yes, he has purposes that involve us and the world, but those purposes and plans lie entirely within his own self. They are the product of his own independent thoughts and will and desires. This is what is meant by God's aseity. And there's more since as the I am, Jesus is the uncreated creator who exists by means of his own power. It follows that he is eternal and unchangeable. Some theologians have actually said that God's aseity is the ultimate attribute. That it's, that it's the, the first attribute. All of the others can, in one way or another, be derived from it. Since Jesus is the creator who doesn't require any other being in order to exist, then of course he is eternal. And since as the I am God has always existed as the very same God, he is unchangeable. Imagine God at the burning bush saying, if you want to know my name and you want to know my essence, it's this, I was. Or imagine Jesus saying, I was the bread of life. If Jehovah was, then he is different now than he was in the past. And we would wonder what relevance a God who was would have for the present. But as for Jesus, what if he was the bread of life? That would mean he's no longer the bread of life. And all that he has recorded here, that we have recorded regarding him here in John 6 is meaningless. Or thinking of the future, imagine God or Jesus saying, I will be. I will be the bread of life. 
This would mean when that statement was made that God was not something that he will be in the future. For Jesus, he would be waiting to become the bread of life at a future date. And if God is evolving in this way, we would have to face the fact that he can't be perfect because a perfect God has to be immutable or unchangeable. For think of it, change is always for the better or for the worse. For example, if God was perfect and then lost something that was needed, he changed for the worse. That God could lose his perfection would mean that he is subject to forces outside of himself, and that kind of God could not claim to be the I am. Or if God needs to have something added to himself, then he's not currently perfect. By needing to have something added, he would be admitting that all that he is right now is not adequate, and and that the hope is that he will be something else. So by claiming to be the I am, God is revealing himself to be a God who doesn't change. He doesn't need to change. He's already perfectly all that he has ever been and will be. And as the I am, Jesus exists as the uncreated God, as only the uncreated God can. And naturally, he existed at the moment he spoke these words. But for Jesus to be and to remain the I am means that he is always the I am, not just in the present, but also in the past and future, which is indeed what Scripture tells us. For example, in, Romans, um, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, it says there of Jesus, who is, notice what's added to that, and who was, and who is to come. But it puts who is first. We might think it would have said who was, and who is, and who is to come. But it says who is, and who was, and who is to come. In John 8, verse 58, Jesus declared to his opponents, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't simply say before Abraham was, I was. But by declaring himself to be the I am 2,000 years before then means that he has always existed as God in a way that transcends time. He has been and remains the ever-present I am. He is the eternal God who operates above time. Yes, he uses time, and he interacts with creatures in time, but he himself remains unaffected by time. As the Son of God, he is eternal and unchangeable. Trying to understand the significance of God and of Jesus calling himself the I Am, it's, it's helpful, I think, to think about how inappropriate it would be for you or me to apply the name I Am to ourselves as somehow defining who we are. I might say that I am something at any given moment. I am tired, I am hungry, I am sad, I am happy, I am working, I am resting. But in making such statements, I'm simply stating something about myself that you can be sure will very soon change. The truth is I can't define myself as being something who, uh, a being who simply is. As soon as I say I am who, the next part of, of that, that statement needs to be what God has made me to be. I am not who I am, but I am who God has made me to be, which includes being affected by the circumstances that God has placed me in. I'm constantly reacting to the world around me, which leaves me in a constant state of flux. I am in a state of becoming something different moment by moment, 
on the downside. I'm aging every moment, leading closer to the grave. My earthly life is fading away. On the upside, by God's grace, I'm being conformed into the image of Christ. But our lives are about constant change. This Jesus, who is Yahweh, the great I am, is the bread of life. And that he is I am is directly related to him being for us the bread of life. Well, how is this the case? What does Jesus mean by calling himself the bread of life? What is he revealing about himself? Well, first we can see right away that there's this natural association between bread and life. And Jesus wants us to realize that he is the source of eternal life for all who trust in him. Thinking of earthly bread, God has provided us with bread. And again, it's bread is used in Scripture as kind of a summary of, of all other food, but he's provided us with bread as a source of energy to sustain life. Without eating, we would die. And while we don't fully understand how it all works, we take bread into our bodies by eating it, and it is broken down by digestion into its various components that then fuel our bodies. And we don't have to understand how all of it works to know that it works. Um, even a child knows that bread sustains life. And that Jesus is the true bread from heaven tells us that he is the anti-type or reality over against the type, which is earthly bread, including manna. Since Jesus is the reality, he is, of course, superior to bread. And this is true in great part because he not only sustains life, but he gives life. He said this specifically back in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, when Jesus' audience heard that the bread he is talking about gives life, they should, immediately, they should have immediately realized that he couldn't possibly be talking about earthly bread because earthly bread never gives life. It merely sustains life that already exists. And even its sustaining ability is limited. Bread can't keep life going on forever but in contrast Jesus both gives and sustains life eternally he is the bread of life in the most comprehensive sense the life of fellowship with God forever and this reality is directly related to Jesus being the I am since he has life in himself and has given us life in creating us it's a given that he is the one who alone can give us eternal life and as the independent one who existed before creation and after creation, he doesn't need us in the process of giving undeserving sinners new life. As the I am who has no need of the creature, God is able to do whatever he wants with or without us. And as the I am, Jesus both gives and sustains life both now and for eternity. And it's because Jesus is this true superior bread that he can promise that if you eat of him, you will never hunger again. This is because when you seek Christ as the bread of life, you are seeking a life that doesn't need to be sustained by earthly bread. Eternal life is a state of existence that doesn't depend upon earthly things like bread. Notice verse 35. <clears throat> Where it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then skipping down to verses 48 through 51. I did, did not read these verses earlier. So notice 48 through 51. 
just says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Eternal life is something that you either have or you don't have. And once you finally realize that you have it in Christ once and for all, then the longing for it ceases. You no longer need to pursue it. You're no longer hungry for it. So how is it that Jesus is the bread of life, eternal life, is given through him? And second, Jesus associates himself with bread because the eating of bread provides a picture of what faith in him is like. In verse 35, Jesus connects coming to him with eating and connects coming with believing. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says, come to me and your hunger will be taken away. Well, hunger is taken away when we eat, and so going to Jesus is how you eat the true bread and get rid of your hunger. There's also mention of thirst, which reminds us of what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman about how those who drink of the water Jesus gives them will never be thirsty again. But especially significant is the parallelism of verse 35. And parallelism is when you put side by side two words or phrases or sentences that are basically the same, but there's a slight difference that, so that the second part helps explain the first. So Jesus puts in parallel coming to him and believing in him which means that you come to Jesus by believing in him. That's what it means to come to Jesus. It is to believe in him. You must go to him as one who has nothing but sin and needs everything that he alone can give. And More specifically, you must be looking to Jesus to provide you with his righteousness so that you can have the eternal life of being right with God and an heir of heaven. This understanding of coming to Jesus is confirmed in uh, 6 verse 40. For this is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And then also will be confirmed later in chapter 7. Notice verses 37 through 38 coming up in chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so what we have in the call to come is Jesus calling you and all who hear these words to believe upon him for eternal life. This, this coming to him, it's not geographical. It's all about believing in him. So how is faith in Jesus analogous to eating? Well, just as eating is a way of bringing our bodies into a vital connection with bread so that the good things of bread can be assimilated and sustain our lives, faith brings us into a vital connection to Christ. It unites us spiritually with him so that the good things of Christ can be assimilated and and give and sustain unto us eternal life. As the bread of life, Jesus is the source of, of all that we need to have eternal life. He earned eternal life for us through his perfect obedience to God's law, through his 
atoning death on the cross in our place. And when you go to Jesus in faith, what you are seeking is eternal life that is grounded in being justified in the sight of God. Faith in Jesus is believing that he can save you from the curse of sin and justify you in the sight of God. And he does that by switching out your sin record with his perfect record. This faith can also be explained as looking to him to give you all that is needed to be in fellowship with God, remembering that what disrupts fellowship with God is sin, and so we need our sins to be forgiven. We need to be accepted as righteous in God's sight. This is what we need to experience God's favor and blessing, and Jesus is the true bread from heaven because when you look to him in faith, he gives you this righteousness that is needed to have the true life of fellowship with God. So this evening we have gone through the first point of explaining what it means to seek Jesus as the bread of life. Next time we will consider the incentives that Jesus here presents in these verses to entice us to seek him as this true bread that gives life. And then after that, we will consider the sure result of such seeking. But let me close with some fitting words from J.C. Ryle in his commentary on the Gospel of John He says three things about bread. He says, first, bread is necessary food. He says, we can manage fairly well without many things on our table, but not without bread. And so it is with Christ. We must have Christ or die in our own sins. And then second, he says, bread is food that suits all. Some cannot eat meat. Some cannot eat vegetables, but all like bread. It is food both for the queen and the pauper. So it is with Christ. He is just the Savior that meets the requirements of every class. And third, bread is food that we need daily. Other kinds of food we take perhaps only occasionally, but we need bread every morning and evening in our lives. And so it is with Christ. There is no day in our lives, but we need his blood, his righteousness, his intercession, and his grace. Well may he be called the bread of life. Man, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, this one who is our great I am. Lord, uh, we thank you for how you have revealed yourself as this one who always has existed, who is eternal, who is unchangeable, who has life in himself, who does not need the creature, does not need this creation somehow make himself better than he already always has been. Um, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is our great I am, and who as such is the bread of life. Father, we pray that each one of us may know what it is to come to Jesus, to to eat of Jesus, to, to take him by faith, seeking from him the righteousness that gives us eternal life. Uh, Lord, may we, we recognize that this eternal life is the true life for which we were created, that physical life here on earth is not what true life is all about. Lord, cause us to see that what we need is not just physical bread, but the true bread from heaven, uh, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And uh, may we, Lord, know what it is to, to trust in, the, in him and to have this hunger for eternal life satisfied, to know that we are on the way to heaven, to know that we are right with you, to know that there's nothing that we need to add to what Jesus has done, that he has given us life, he sustains life, 
uh, and in him we have all that we could ever need and want. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus making very clear to us um, what kind of Savior he is. We pray these things in his name. Amen.